You're listening to Walk It Out with Trisha Goyer, where we discover what it looks like to follow God and be swept away on the journey of a lifetime. Author of over 70 books, mom of 10, yes, 10, homeschooler and speaker, Trisha Goyer will explore what radical obedience to God's word looks like. It's time to hear from God lovers who've dared to say yes. Listen in to heart-to-heart chats and learn how others overcame doubts and fears. Discover how God used ordinary people to impact others one step at a time. If you're ready to get radical, get going, and make a difference in this world, you're at the right place. Here's your host, prolific writer, world traveler, people lover, and mega nap taker, Trisha Goyer. Well, welcome to Walk It Out, and we're going to be talking about one of my favorite things today, which are novels. And I remember I was a little girl who, uh, during the summers, would go to the library and would get so many books, it would weigh down the front of my bicycle as I was coming back from the library. In fact, once I had so many Nancy Drew, you know, Little House on the Prairie, so many books in the front of my bicycle that when I was going down a hill, I flipped over the handlebars. <laughs> this is how much I love reading, how much I love fiction. And when I open a novel, um, I usually have to tell myself, okay, only one more chapter. And that usually doesn't work. But today I have an awesome guest. Cynthia Rukti is tells stories hemmed in hope through novels, nonfiction, devotionals, and speaking events. She serves as a professional relations liaison for the American Christian fiction writers and is a frequent speaker at writers' conferences across the country. She married her grade school sweetheart, and the two live in the heart of Wisconsin, not far from their three children and five grandchildren. So welcome, Cynthia. Thank you so much. I have great news. We have a sixth grandchild to add oh, to that list. Yay. Yep. So we need to change your bio that says six grandchildren now. Uh, right. Um, and I, the, uh, she's going to be one year old this weekend. So we are so excited about having that sixth grandchild in our brood. She's just a delight. And I'm telling you, grandkids are the best. The <laughs> it's best. so much fun having those little grandbabies around. We just had some grandbabies here yeah. um, over the weekend, and I, I love it so much. So we're going to be talking about your novel, Afraid of the Light. Okay, but before we jump into that, okay, I need to know this because it says that you married your grade school sweetheart. It didn't say high school sweetheart. I so that, I want to hear this story. Is that weird or what? So um, I moved from a town. Our family moved many times when I was young. I think I was, I lived in 12 different houses by the time I was 11 or 12. And some of them were completely across the country from one another. My dad was in the Marines and in college Mm -hmm. a lot. So we moved quite frequently. When we moved then to the Southwest corner of Wisconsin on, I think day one or two or three, that we were we were actually living in a house on the corner of the school grounds. My dad was an educator, a music educator in the middle school. And from that arena in that corner of the school grounds, one of those first days, there was this really handsome sixth grader. <laughs> I was, I was I in fifth so grade. I was in fifth grade, and there was just this amazing sixth grader who um, I, he seemed to me as a fifth grader, tall, dark, and handsome. 
And um, I then found out that he went to the church that we went to. And so youth group and um, children's programs and all that. They are, our families live five blocks from one another. So it wasn't long before I thought to myself, Lord, is it dumb to dream that he, I might be his wife someday? And of course, when you're in fifth grade and sixth grade, that's that's just one of those puppy love kind of yeah, dreams. Yeah, absolutely. And um, then it turned out that we broke up in sixth grade and seventh grade until his mom told me, you know, he's never forgotten about you. And I thought, that is all the ammunition I need. <laughs> so... In throughout middle school, and then we began to date when we were technically old enough to date and uh, high school. And he went away to Bible college a year before I did. And then I, I joined him that next year. And at the end of that, you're in the middle of that year, uh, we got engaged and I we were married at 20 and 21, which I don't necessarily recommend because <laughs> we still weren't mature. And even though we had been an item for all those years, like eight years before we got married, we still had a lot of growing up to do. Mm -hmm. But this summer, in just a few weeks, we will be celebrating 48 years of marriage. I love that story. That's awesome. I got married when I was 18. Mm -hmm. So and John was 23. Yeah. And there's yep. a lot of growing up that takes a lot place. of growing up to do. <laughs> it seems like we almost grew up together during those times with the kids. Yep, so true. Oh, I love that. Yeah, when I read that bio, I'm like, okay, I need to, I need to find out more <laughs> about that. And and I love. I mean, you do so many things. You write nonfiction. I know you did radio for many years. Mm-hmm. Um, your novels, I just enjoy them so much. And mm-hmm. this new one, Afraid of the Light, I picked it up, and uh, right away, um, there seems like there's just so many complexities to these characters, like from the very first pages. So I would just love to hear, like, how did you get the idea for Afraid of the Light? And just give a little elevator pitch to tell people what it's about, too. Afraid of the Light is the story of a woman who counsels hoarders and their families. She's a clinical psychologist, Camille, and um, she counsels hoarders and their families to try to try to bring comfort for one thing, but to also help um, in the hoarding situation, families are in the fallout of that kind of compulsion or addiction. So she grew up in a family and she was part of the fallout in her own family. So she took this path to try to help other families. But then along the course of the story, we'll see that it's, uh, it's revealed that everybody, everybody has their own hoard. If we're not hoarding things, we're hoarding emotions or we're hoarding past grievances or we're hoarding pain from years past. So it's really a study in all of humanity. And when I say study, that sounds weird about a novel, but the the novel storytelling is such a great form for us to understand one another better as we walk along with the characters in a book. And that, so that was the, that's not a real elevator pitch. That's a very long elevator ride. (laughs) But that's the basis of the story. And then if you'd like to know how I got onto that topic. Yeah, absolutely. 
I always am looking for, and not every novelist is like this, but I'm always looking for the story nobody else is telling, or I'm looking for the idea of, of A, what is a subject I need to grow in? And I thought I was a compassionate person, but the more I dove into this topic, the more I realized that I had room to grow in compassion and empathy for people who are living a, a lifestyle like that or, her, or who are troubled by addictions like that, that I have maybe shied away from because I didn't understand. I didn't understand what was going on behind. So like a lot of people, I had seen some hoarder programs on television. And I'd seen the sensational extreme hoarder things and and I knew in my heart, and Trisha, I know you'll understand this because this is how you operate. There's got to be a story behind yeah. this. There's got to be a deeper story behind it. So that's what drove me to dive in deeper. That is so good. And, and we watched those shows. My teens for a while were addicted to watching mm-hmm. all the hoarder shows. And it's like, oh my goodness. And you know, and we, we always talk about there, there are mental issues, there are mm-hmm. family issues, there's so much more going on. I think sometimes, you know, we get caught up and I can't believe they have that many gallons of old milk sitting around <laughs> or whatever. Like we're thinking about the things, but there really is a lot more deeper issues going on. And in fact, my son, who's 26 now, when he was in high school, um, one of his friends, his mom hired them to help clean out a hoarder's house. Oh. And... Um, I, I think it was a property deal or something was going on where they had to clean out this house and the people had to leave. Like she couldn't even be there while they were cleaning it out. But he said they were going through the living room and they had a son that was uh, like a preteen boy. Mm-hmm. And as they were digging through, taking stuff out, like he said, mom, the couch, you couldn't even refer see there's a couch there, but we saw years coming off. Like these are teenage clothes, preteen clothes, mm-hmm. elementary school clothes. And then like just layers and layers until finally on the first level of the couch, was baby clothes. I mean, that is how many layers. And he just came home like talking about it and, you know, and just realizing like there's so many more, like we see the external, mm-hmm. um, but there's so much going on, which I love. That's what you are digging into. And even Camille, the person who is helping right away from the very first pages, you're like, oh, she has a lot going on inside <laughs> her. Like what is going on with this yeah. girl? And I think that's what really draws you in. You realize that this is a person helping, but there's layers inside her. Even though she's helping people with the layers on the outside, there's layers inside her going on. And isn't that true with all of us? Mm-hmm. Really? It may not be a mental health issue. It may not be a true addiction or compulsion, but many times, many times we are better able to help others if we have our own issues, but sometimes we're trying to help someone else without having dealt with those issues right. in our own life. And that we may have a measure of success, but we will have the most success if we if we are willing to let in the light, if we're willing to let that that light come in and shine on the dark places or the murky places or the piles of things we have in our own lives. And um, when that happens, then we're able to peel back our own layers or uh, in in this case, allowing the Lord to peel back the layers and uh, bring us to a place where we can help other people from a place of health ourselves. Mm, that's so good. And really it is 
it's a story of freedom. There's layers mm. of they're finding freedom as they go along. And I cannot wait to read more. Mm. Um, I was up to like one. I'm like, okay, I need to put this book down. <laughs> uh, I, have, I have things to do tomorrow. But, you know, I, I'm even thinking of my own life. Books are definitely, <laughs> definitely mm. the things. And I'm thinking of, you know, and, and it goes back to, I mentioned going to the library and taking home piles of books and mm. always wanting to have the money to buy the weekly reader books and we never had enough money mm. and now it's like I love books I love researching so you know every novel I have 20 to 25 research books and and after a while like there's double stacks on my bookshelves and Kathy Lip who does uh, the Clutter Free Academy uh-huh. she really helped me especially like I have lots of friends who are always sending me their books and she says, you know what, if there's someone else that can enjoy the book, like you don't need to keep it on your shelf and you still love your friends and you don't need to keep all their books. And mm. I've been cleaning out. Um, I, I've given, given away like four sets of curriculum in the last couple of weeks. I've given away, you know, boxes and boxes of books to friends. I'm like, hey, your mom likes to read. Here you go. And it is it's bringing freedom to know that, yes, I still love my friends, but someone else can enjoy their stories now. And I think sometimes we don't look at it that way we think oh I need to keep this because I might I might need it or it's my friend so I need to keep her book on my shelf or whatever but really it is freedom when we can give stuff away when we can help other people instead of just piling up more and more I had a friend who for years said cute piles up and that really struck me because I I thought about the idea that it's not just the necessities that pile up Mm -hmm, it's not mm -hmm. just what we are heart attached to and then, of course, in a hoarder situation, their heart is attached to everything, whether it has right. true, true value or not. But isn't it symbolic of the way we walk through our lives, Tricia, and we find ourselves hanging on to the things that really don't matter as much as we thought they did, and that those things become tripping hazards for the things that really do matter in our lives. Sometimes it's a a hobby that we're engaged in that all of a sudden we realize, wow, I'm investing so much money in this hobby and I'm turning away opportunities to minister to people or I'm pushing my family away because this hobby is so important to me. Sometimes it can be as simple as an item that might that we might have a sentimental attachment to that would be like um, my my great my grandmother's china. We're having a terrible time in our family right now because when my mother passed away, I was the one who got grandma's china, but it's not dishwasher safe. It's not a real pretty pattern. And all of a sudden, I'm starting to look at things differently, thinking if I kept one symbolic piece of that china, is there not somebody else who could use this. And it may not even be within the family, but think about the ways in which the tender moments of what happened in our family, which was, it was a good family. We always knew that we were loved. I didn't know my grandmother very well because she passed away when I was in first grade, but does having her complete set meet a need in my heart? Or do I have to sit down and think through where's the best use for that? And is it going to be something that becomes a burden to me that every time I rearrange the dining room, I'm having to figure out what to do with grandma's china? And and I know that we're living in an era where a lot of people in the younger generation find no attachment to the things of the past, very little. And 
when at first we might think, well, how rude. (laughs) On second thought, we realize, wait a second, have we placed maybe an excess of attachment on a physical item when what we really want to cherish is the memory of that person? So if we have something, some one thing that we can hang on to that connects us to that memory, is that not better than having a pile of unused or even not all that valuable anymore, but but it's something that we have placed an undue attachment to. Uh, one time I was at a women's event and the woman said, if you're trying to uh, make sure that your house is easier to care for and that you're not stumbling over things mentally or physically, consider do you really need all three of your great grandma's egg beaters Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. or is one going to meet your heart need in reminding you of that precious woman? You know, antique lovers are going to say, oh, I'm turning this off right now (laughs) because I cannot identify with this at all. But for those of us who maybe struggle with, am I hanging on to too much? That's one of the thoughts that um, can come in for a hoarder like those that are talked about in the in Afraid of the Light, the characters in Afraid of the Light. Theirs went way beyond that until it became a, a mental and an emotional compulsion that was driven by something other than a sweet memory. Mm-hmm. It was driven by that the mental health issue that made them place that kind of affection on an old bread wrapper or something that was actually injurious to their health. And, but the compulsion was so strong that they feared getting rid of it and they feared letting the light in and letting people see who they really were at their core. And I think that's what I got even from the beginning. Um, you know, you have these hoarders that are afraid of letting people in because they don't want them to see how they're living because they're reflecting that on themselves. Like, I don't want you to see me, you know, see these things. And I think, oh my goodness, this is such, this relates so much to every one of us and what we want to show other people. I mean, social media, you know, we're posting like, this is so, look at how great my family is, or this is, you know, (laughs) wonderful. We're, we're displaying what we want people to see. But then we're thinking, oh yeah, but I'm not going to show this other part. I mean, there's so many things. And that's what I love about fiction. It is like, even as I'm reading your novel about these characters, I'm thinking of these things. I'm thinking of, okay, yeah, I'm getting rid of books and, you know, thinking about, um, oh, you know, there's other things in my life that I don't want people to see, but what, what are those things and how can I deal with them? And it's all as you're going through reading a novel, getting swept away in these characters, um, these things and these conversations are kind of going on in our own minds. And I think that is why I love, and you said, you know, exploring um, all these elements in the pages of a novel. So I, I would love to hear as you're going along, um, were there things that surprised you about these situations and the characters? There, there were several big surprises. One of the surprises was how often family members feel as if their parent, let's say the kids, the kids in the in the family, whether they're adult children or teens or even younger children, when they have a hoarder who is a parent, they feel as if the parent is intentionally choosing mm. their things over the child. Mm. 
Mm-hmm. And what a heartbreak. And and sometimes that it's not just a perception. That's what it truly looks like. But it's that's rarely or almost never what's really happening in the heart of the hoarder. It is the it's the compulsion, it's the disorder that is making them um, act that way. But if you asked the mother or the father, are, are you choosing items over your children? They would say, absolutely not. I love my children. But the disorder is creating this scenario in which the children very much see evidence after evidence after evidence that what their heart needs is not being met in their parent because the parent is chosen, has chosen this kind of a, not chosen, is in this kind of a lifestyle. Right. It, it, it's just like just about every addiction. I think a lot of people make an assumption that a, an addict's every choice is a decision that they could have decided not to. And we condemn them for that, not realizing that there's far more than just a choice, far more than just a decision made when the when things have gotten to the place where it's a true addiction or that kind of a compulsion. Um, and rather than condemning them, there are other ways that we can uh, make inroads into reestablishing those relationships and connections. And we know very well that love conquers all, mm-hmm. all. Uh, and whether that happens right away or it takes a very long time, approaching it from a loving perspective is, is certainly one of the, um, one of the things that Jesus taught. But beyond that, it's, it's also one of the only things that works. And we can tell that with our own children. We can see that as we look around ourselves and at, at our communities as well. Another one of the surprises for me, Tricia, was that behind almost every hoarding addiction or hoarding compulsion is some deep, deep wound. Mm, and if they good. had a tendency toward that, the wound just exacerbated it and made it explode until it was out of control. So if, you know, we can kind of see how that would matter in our own daily lives with whatever people are going through, some of the hardest people for us to love, we have to stop and take a break and think to ourselves, what is the wound behind this person's actions? It places us in that in that spot of compassion ruling as opposed to our um, maybe our natural tendencies or what would ordinarily come out of us or griping about the person or wanting to stay far away. Instead, what they probably need is a listening ear. What they probably need is someone who will love them anyway. Unconditional love is is such a powerful thing. So finding ways to apply unconditional love when we meet up with, whether it's a grocery clerk or a member of our family who is, in our words, misbehaving, we can usually find out that there's a deep wound behind it. If we can get to what that wound is and help that person walk gently toward the place where the Lord can deal with that wound, then we're going to have a, um, then there there is hope for reestablishing a strong, healthy relationship. That is so good. I love how you said, like, sometimes we just think 
it's a decision that they're making. And I've seen that so much dealing with kids from trauma. Mm-hmm. Um, I would always think, oh, they're just rebelling against me. They are purposely acting this way in anger. Mm-hmm. And the more we went to therapy, I realized like this is a reaction because of the trauma in their past. Mm-hmm. It's like the fight, flight, freeze. They are doing something as a reaction to their past. It's not like they purposely are just trying to ruin my day or to <laughs> lash out angrily at me it was because and as they're dealing with their past traumas I'm learning how to handle it it's yeah. like I was disciplining things that are really just them trying to protect themselves over and yeah. over and over again and yeah. I think so many times we don't understand those reactions mm-hmm. we always think like people are making decisions because you know we make decisions about stuff but not yeah. everyone is the same way and then I also love how you said looking at their past and the wounds and even just simple things it doesn't have to be huge like my my grandma she's 90 almost 91 and she lives with us and I remember we went to Disney World and she is very concerned about food so mm-hmm. you know we went and we ate lunch at Disney World and you know we're pushing around in her wheelchair and uh, she didn't finish her burrito at lunch and so she's carrying around half of a burrito for hours <laughs> and we're like grandma no, you know, like this is old now. We need to throw it away. No, I'll eat it later. You don't need to spend more money on food. It's fine. And finally, we had to like slip it away and throw it away because it would have not been good in the heat to have her eat that. But then, you know, as as we're talking about this, I'm like, because they're like, why does she keep hanging on to the burrito? The kids are like asking questions. I said, she was born in 1929. You know, her family lived in a boxcar. They did not have food. Like food is very important to her. And just those little things when we understand people, you know, I don't need to argue with my grandma for 20 minutes about her burrito. I could just, you know, you know, when she's not looking, you know, we just slipped it away. We bought her other food and she mm-hmm. forgot that she didn't have her burrito anymore. Mm-hmm. But, you know, just realizing that people do have those stories, those those things that they live through that sometimes we don't even understand. Mm, so true. Our ability to walk through life, to walk it out, one might say, it to walk through life with the assumption that people are hurting mm-hmm. on some level changes everything with us. Uh, if we're living a self-centered, how this affected me, how badly I feel because of how they reacted to me or responded to me, or or if we're making assumptions about their, their choices being wrong or or uh, foolish. We might even think that some choices are foolish, but we're missing out then on the big picture. And the big picture really is how, how do we respond when, when people that we care about, especially those that we care about, are embroiled in something that is so deeply buried that it doesn't come to the surface or it's not explained or you know your grandmother didn't say I'm going to save my burrito for for later because of my childhood she may not even be aware that that's the response or the reaction or how she's she's handling it but imagine living life with eyes wide open. Imagine living life with, with an assumption of kindness and compassion toward other people. Uh, imagine doing that with ourselves as well. We oftentimes are chiding ourselves about decisions that we've made and don't take time to ponder and think about, why did I do that? Oh, 
It's because the last time I held a job where the boss called me into the office, I was fired. So we have this response right. of the boss is calling me into the office. I'm nervous. I'm tense. I'm ready for a fight. I'm ready to defend myself. Um, but the freedom of living life with with the positive assumptions, with the with the kind of assumptions that really are are creating an atmosphere in which we will embrace other people until even before we understand what's really going on behind the scenes. Mm, That is so good. And, and I think we can start to see that in ourselves. And especially when you're reading a novel, you can start seeing like, okay, I can understand this about myself. But I love how you talk about with your eyes wide open, seeing other people. And I found with my kids, with anyone really naming their emotion is the Mm. biggest thing to helping someone Mm. um with my kids you know I have kids that will chew on their clothes or Mm. break pencils to little pieces I mean all these things Mm. and I could say stop breaking that stop chewing your clothes Mm -hmm. and instead I'll say I can tell you're anxious because whatever is going on you have an appointment tomorrow or you're going to meet new friends tonight or at you know you're starting your baseball tomorrow or whatever it is Mm -hmm naming the emotion and letting them know that you see that and then it just like clicks in their brain because like you said sometimes people don't even know what's going on um and that really really helps them and I I mean I just love that it's through these stories that we write that we're able to dig into all these things I I never would have picked up a book on hoarding right (laughs) right. you know like a nonfiction book on hoarding right then I just walked away with the characters Well, and I I love having that avenue. The storytelling has always in my own life been the root to my heart Mm -hmm. through storytelling. And I think there are a lot of us that would say the same thing. So it's risky, even as an author, it's risky to take on a topic. Um, I have a book coming out next year, too, that it was risky to take on that topic and and, um, get into it. But for this book as well, I... I wasn't sure exactly what I was going to discover about myself when I I began to form this story and I watched those characters come alive and do things that I didn't expect and reveal things I didn't expect and um, and creating their story and writing it down on paper is it's a, a challenge and it's not something we enter into lightly but we know the potential that if I was moved. I shed tears over these mm-hmm, characters. Mm-hmm. The hope is that other people will be moved as well. And that and with Afraid of the Light, it was one of those things that I it would I had to find a unique method that the expert could be sharing some information without it looking like sharing information. But what turned out in the end that even though I had her her tool be her podcast where right. she could be really thinking through her thoughts well um, and then have these secondary characters who would come in and be wisdom people just speaking wisdom into her um, and as well as the people that she was dealing with and their families as clients um, I, I was discovering that there was a there was time for me even in writing the novel, there was time for me to process things that I maybe hadn't thought through before, but it also created a safe place for that to happen because I was seeing it in the characters Mm. first. 
But the other thing about it, I think that's really unique is that, isn't it true that no matter what our own pain is, if we read in a novel, we get it that somebody understands our pain. It may be an imaginary character, but somebody understands our pain. And being heard, being noticed, being seen, knowing that someone else has gone through something similar, if not the exact thing, is really freeing for us. And it gives us hope. And that's that's the intention in the books that I write. Oh, I love that so much. And I want to just talk just a couple of minutes about writing fiction, because I know so many people have novels started and, you know, have not gone anywhere with it and uh, feels like it's just flat. And I think what you're touching on is exactly what I teach at conferences. And I know you do too, is that it has to be about emotion and it has to be about us processing pain and heartache and all the things in our past. And I always say, you know, write, and I got this from my friend, Robin Gunn, who's amazing, write a timeline of your life and the highs and the lows. And what were those moments where you felt, you know, abandonment or shame Mm. or all these things. And you don't even need the same situation, but grab onto those emotions, put them in your characters. Cause I know when I'm looking, you know, at conferences or other places, there's a lot of things happening in a book often but it's not going deep enough so I would just love out of your expertise just to share a couple minutes about that for those who maybe are writing a novel want to write a story and need advice about that I think that's excellent advice already Tricia that you've given I had written four books before my first book was picked up in 2010 I'm working on book number 36 right now I'm I'm not keeping up with you but here's the, and no one can, but here's the interesting part about that is that here were these novels I already had in my arsenal and they were going nowhere. Someone asked me, write the story that will cost you the most emotionally to write. And, and I had heard that advice before, but this time it really sank in. And I said, I don't think I have a story like that. Oh, maybe I do. And I, I was reminded of the emotions that I had when my husband almost didn't come home from his two-week camping trip in Canada. Um, he got deathly ill, mm. and I we were in a real tough place for a while of not knowing if he would live or not. And the emotions turned a little bit from our story to what if there was a woman who didn't want her husband to come home from that trip or if she wasn't sure she did and what would have made her feel that way after several years of marriage and diving then into the emotions that were sparked by something real in life like you said but being willing to write the book the story that would cost me the most emotionally to write was the turning point for me because I was writing just stories before, and now I was writing from the heart, or even deeper, from the guts. And uh, that's what made what was happening on the page and the depth in the characters far different. That was a real turning point for me, so it may be for other authors as well. That is so good. And I'm thinking of my first novel, too, from Dust and Ashes, is about the liberation of a concentration camp and a Nazi officer's wife who, as soon as the gates were open, her husband was gone and she was in caring for the people and the shame she carried of what happened to these, you know, Holocaust survivors and her husband abandoned her. I mean, all these things. And I mean, I was crying through the novel. And when it was published, 
this is already after it's published. One of my very closest friends read it and said, it's your story. Oh. I'm like, uh, no, it's not. <laughs> it's about a Nazi's, Nazi officer's wife in Austria outside this concentration camp. I'm like, oh, she's like, no, it's all, you trying to redeem the past mistakes, oh. abandoned by her husband. She was, my character was pregnant when oh. she was abandoned. And, and I'm like, oh, my goodness, because I was a teen mom, mm-hmm. you know, had an abortion when I was um, in high school and all these things. And I'm like, oh, my goodness, it's my story oh. <laughs> in a novel form, mm-hmm. which at the time, I mean, that's why the character came out who she was because I was digging into those things, but I didn't even realize it. But now as a novelist, I know what to dig into. I know the hard stuff. I know how to pull those emotions out to cry, you know, mm-hmm. on the page, all those things. Mm-hmm. But it, it's so interesting that thou, those are the books that really resonate with first editors, then mm-hmm. their readers, because they dig into parts of ourselves. And so I think no matter what topic, if we can dig in and ask questions of ourselves and dig into past issues or, or uh, pains, that really brings those novels to life. I so agree. I I uh, have told my children, when I'm gone, don't look around for my journals. I didn't write journals, uh, but you can read the novels and find out what I was dealing <laughs> with or, or find out where I was in my spiritual walk at the time or what I was wrestling with or what I had wrestled through yes. and come to the come to a great conclusion with it and then wanted to share that same kind of freedom with other people. Oh, that's so good. Well, Cynthia, I love what I'm reading so far. I know I'm going to love this book because I've loved your other novels. Again, it's Afraid of the Light um, and it's Kriegel Publications. You can find it, I know, wherever books are sold um, online. If their store is open, <laughs> you might be able to go into them. But um, where else can people connect with you? They can connect with me on my website, which is CynthiaRookde.com. And so few people can spell my last name that I, they can also get there through HemmedInHope.com, which will direct them to the very same website, but it's a little easier than, than um, remembering how to spell Rookde. So uh, that, and on Facebook, I'm on, on Facebook under my name and, um, Instagram and the traditional social media uh, places. But um, I also want to encourage people too, that if their bookstore is open, but not mm-hmm. having crowds come through, talk to your bookstore, they'd be happy to yes. order it for you. And many of them are going out of their way to be able to get good books into the hands of readers. And I have heard some are doing, um, you know, a sidewalk pickup so right. they will meet you outside with their book. delivery Curbside I love delivery. that I love that and it reminds me a little bit of the bookmobile that I used to that was my thing I didn't take my bike to the library I walked about two blocks to the bookmobile when it would come to town and oh that was the best day of best day of my month Oh, I love that so much. I've never had a bookmobile wherever I lived. That would be a, yeah, they would be a frequent visitor at my house probably. So true. They would know Um, you by name. Yes. Well, thank you so much. And we will have all the links on the show notes at walkitoutpodcast.com. But I just appreciate you so much and all that you pour into your novels. Thank you, Tricia. And I, you, and thank you so much for giving me this opportunity to talk with you about it. Absolutely. That was so great talking to Cynthia. And what I love, it's not only that she's an amazing writer, 
but such a great communicator. And she's able to just share so much deeply from her heart. A couple of things that she said that I really appreciated was that a lot of people make the assumptions that addicts, um, that their every choice is a decision and we condemn them for that and not realizing that there's far more going on than just a choice. And rather than condemning them, there are other ways we can make inroads into reestablishing those relationships. And then Cynthia said, a love conquers all. And such good things. I was taking notes on it. Also, she said, um, behind almost every hoarding compulsion or hoarding addiction is some deep, deep wound. And that, that we have the tendency, um, if someone has that tendency there anyway, that the wound just exasperates it. And I like how she said, behind almost every hoarding compulsion or hoarding addiction is some deep, deep wound. And I think that's good for us to remember that there's a lot more going on because it's so easy to just look at those decisions and get angry or upset with people instead of truly loving them. Well, today's Walk It Out verse is 1 Corinthians 5, 4. So don't make judgments about anyone ahead of time before the Lord returns, for he will bring our darkest secrets into light and will reveal our private motives. Then God will give to each one whatever praise is due. And that's again, 1 Corinthians 4, 5. And this can be a heavy verse. And I know I have um, talked to my teens, especially about this. Um, God will bring our darkest secrets into light and reveal our private motives. And I do it not just to say, okay, you guys better not be hiding stuff from me, which I don't want them hiding things from me, but also we need to really look at what is going on in our hearts. And I think so many times when we're having an outward struggle or we see someone else having an outward struggle, just knowing that there's a lot going on in the heart. So we can pray that God will reveal that and that he will show us. So you know, we always think about those other people out there, but really what things are we needing to deal with? What deep wounds, what pains can we look at in our own life and maybe see that some of the out- outward things that we're dealing with do deal with the inward things that we're dealing with. And God knows. I have prayed before. It's Psalm one thirty nine twenty five. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Test me and know my thoughts, see if there's any wicked way in me and lead me to the way of everlasting. And God, when he searches our hearts, he does it with such tenderness. But when we are willing to open our hearts to him and ask him to search us and to reveal what's really going on, he will do that. And so that is my encouragement today. And let me just pray for us. Dear Lord, I thank you so much for Cynthia. I thank you for the time Um, the energy, the prayer that she pours into writing her books, whether it's fiction and nonfiction, and she serves so many people and inspires so many people. I just pray a blessing over her, over her writing for the books that she is writing and that continue to come out, Lord. Um, May these novels be put into the hands of those who really need them, Lord. I pray for the listeners out there. Maybe there's something going on in their own hearts, his or her own hearts, that um, it's hard bringing those dark things into the light. I love Cynthia's title, Afraid of the Light. But Lord, I'm so thankful that your light is there to um, bring hope and healing and not to condemn. At first, it seems like condemnation because we do often bring things out in shame. But Lord, you 
have so much love and compassion. And like Cynthia said in the interview, love does conquer all. And I'm so thankful that your love conquers all. I pray that you'll be with every listener today, that um, that each one will just dare to say, search me, O God, not because they're afraid, but because they know that you can bring hope and healing. And we pray this in your name. Amen. Well, friends, I am so thankful for Cynthia and for her sharing about her story, her research, her experiences. And also at the end, we talked about writing fiction. If you are interested in writing books, in writing magazine articles, in writing nonfiction books, novels, all those things, I do have a resource called Write That Book with Trisha Goyer. It's a private subscription group that you can um, find. It's through Facebook, and every week we have experts like Cynthia, she's one of our experts, um, share about writing, about editing, about writing a book proposal, about writing a scene, about how to get published. Um, All these things are through Write That Book. And I will include a link on the show notes. The show notes are always walkitoutpodcast.com. And I hope that you will be encouraged and inspired. And if you are interested in writing a book, don't put it off. Even a little every day, 30 minutes an hour every day, you will have something by the end of the year. And so sit down, share your heart, pour it out. And just like Cynthia, you never know how people will be blessed and inspired by your stories. Thanks for listening to Walk It Out. Head over to the show notes for this podcast and all past episodes at www.walkitoutpodcast.com. If you love the show, share it with someone you know who can make a radical difference in the world. We love new friends. See you next time.